Hallo, welkom bij de andere krant. De andere krant is een Dutch printed uh, paper that is published on a weekly basis. And in this newspaper we cover the news from angles that you won't find in the mass media. Today our guest is James Corbett. James Corbett doesn't really require an introduction. However, perhaps some people in the Netherlands don't know him yet. So he is the founder and the producer of the Corbett Report, where he publishes podcasts, interviews, articles and videos. And these videos are actually kind of almost documentary deep dives into topics such as geopolitics, the financial system, the surveillance state, always providing a historical context and also showing the institutional structures around it. So I cannot recommend his documentary videos enough. And today our topic is 3D chess, um, which will, James will explain shortly. But the reason that um, I invited him to talk about this topic is that um, I have a newsletter in which I share news that doesn't make the mainstream news. And based on this newsletter, the editor-in-chief of the Andere Kant asked me to cover the geopolitics sections. And I said, hmm, yes, I sometimes share geopolitics articles, but I also share Other topics such as what's happening now, which is COVID related, is that all the countries are suddenly following WHO policy. And we have a captured UN institution that's captured by billionaire funding. And so I guess that what I'm trying to um, understand for myself is how does the power structure actually work? So the The two pages that I write every week are called People and Power. So when I read this article by uh, James Corbett on 3D chess, he very clearly and eloquently described something that in my own mind was kind of a vague concept or very tentative. And because this was uh, described so clearly, I thought this, this is great to write about, but also to talk about a little bit more deeply. So, James, with that, welcome. Thank you for being here tonight. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So, um, I'll start with a simple question. Can you shortly explain what you mean by 3D chess? I think I can. So, uh, for people who are not familiar with Star Trek, which is where <laughs> I get the analogy, uh, of course, we're all familiar with the simple game of chess, two-dimensional chess, as in it is played on a flat board. Um, and we all understand, if not the intricate rules of chess, at the very least, the idea of chess, that there are two competing teams, the white team and the black team that are both captained by a player. And the players move pieces around the board in order to capture various squares of the board in order to better position their pieces so that they can eventually checkmate the king, which is the ultimate end game and the end goal of Chess. Now, again, I'm sure we are all at least vaguely familiar with the uh, the, the rules and and uh, the, the the way that chess is played ordinarily. However, some people might be surprised to learn there is, in fact, there are various people over the years who have uh, attempted to create an actual 3D chessboard, as in not just simply a two-dimensional plane in which players are are uh, facing each other head-on, but a three-dimensional playing space in which there are various there are various permutations of this that you can even read about on Wikipedia, if you'd like, in which there are different levels of the board, etc. And I think this is an interesting analogy to begin to tease out exactly what you were talking about earlier. 
how does power really function in our society? Because I, I think, I would imagine that a lot of your readership has at least had moments of aporia where there's some sort of gap between the explanation that is being offered for an, an event and the self-evident truth that is staring us in the face about that event. And in that gap, we may simply just shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, things are weird sometimes, or we may look for an explanation. And my explanation has to do with this 3D chess analogy, which is to say that uh, the two-dimensional chessboard has often been used as a, as a metaphor, as an analogy for geopolitics, as in the great game of geopolitics is to try to capture squares on the geopolitical chessboard, i.e. the earth, and to position forces in various places in order to better corner your opponent and uh, ultimately bend them to your will or defeat them entirely if that's the purpose. But what if the game is in fact not uh, as straightforward as that analogy would imply? What if it is not simply two captains on two competing teams who are facing off each other against each other, as we have been asked to believe in various uh, battles, that, uh, geopolitical battles that we've seen throughout our lifetime, perhaps most obviously in the 20th century, the battle between the United States and the Soviet Union, the blue team and the red team, however you want to categorize that, whatever uh, analogy you want to use there. Um, we're playing some sort of chess game and they were trying to use certain pieces in order to capture certain squares of the board in order to gain relative advantage over their opponent. And these two teams fought each other until eventually the Soviet Union collapsed. And now in the 21st century, we can see a similar uh, type of great game, if you will, um, emerging between the U.S. and China and or the U.S. and Russia, or perhaps yeah. it's the NATO countries and Russia. Um, this is the way that it is being framed for us in the mainstream media. I believe that it is not that simple game, or at least that simple two-dimensional game that we can all identify is taking place. But there are players on three-dimensional levels of a three-dimensional chessboard that we may not even be aware uh, exist until we start to see strange things taking place on the two-dimensional chessboard, where suddenly the white team and the black team, the pieces get a bit confused and one piece moves in a direction that it's not supposed to move. And so, suddenly we're, we're wondering what happened. It makes no sense to us because we are simply looking at the two-dimensional chessboard without realizing there are players who may not be on the black team or the white team in any straightforward sense who are making moves on this chessboard that we can't even see. Once yeah. we start to put that into our calculus, we can start to come to a more refined and I think more, uh, more accurate description of the way geopolitics really functions. Exactly, because one of those way, things that really surprised me was that I always thought of Russia as quite sovereign. That if you listen to uh, Putin's or Lavrov's speeches, then they, um, yeah, that's really what they advocate and are, they are very clear about that. But then COVID happened and they were fooling on board with this whole COVID narrative. Whereas if you have just like, if you're just willing to look at the evidence, it's, very clear that um, there's just very little evidence to support that th there's a big health crisis. So if they were really sovereign, they would have done something like um, Tanzania um, President Magufuli, who tested papayas and goats with PCR tests <laughs> that tested positive. 
And then he said, these tests doesn't work and I'm not going to cooperate with that. But Russia didn't do that. And that was kind of like a red flag for me. I thought if they're really independent, I don't expect this type of behavior. How do you look at that? I, I would agree that this displays and is one of those moments that I, I point to of, well, this doesn't seem to make sense from the narrative that we are given. So there may may, may there be a deeper level of this explanation. Um, and I think the answer is a resounding yes. If we want to look specifically at the case of Russia and what role it may be playing in this growing world governmental architecture that's being slotted into place piece by piece right before our very eyes, we might start to... Um, problematize that simple attribution that we make that the leader of Russia is Putin and Putin says this and therefore Russia believes this or something along those lines. At a certain level, we I think we all understand that Biden is not the United States of America. Putin is not Russia. Xi Jinping is not China. That the, these are at the very best executives within a more complicated governmental structure, or I think more cynically, puppets and figureheads who are given a certain amount of leeway to enact certain agendas, but only with coloring within the lines, as it were. Um, so if we start to say, well, if we're not simply looking at Putin and what he says as the be all and end all of what Russia is and what is happening in Russia, where do we start to look? And many observers and commentators on Russia have pointed out about the um, St. Petersburg clique and other people in positions of financial power in Russia who they contend are a faction that uh, often clashes with uh, Putin and uh, take a, a different geopolitical foreign policy bent and sometimes are able to achieve certain things within Russia based on their uh, uh, Atlantic leanings, as in they're more in inclined towards uh, association with Europe um, as opposed to association, say, with China. And so there are competing power factions within Russia. That's one way to start to visualize how this is not simply a uh, a coherent team on the chessboard, as it were. Everyone in Russia is, is a black piece on the chessboard, and they're all moving at the command of Putin. Again, seems a bit simplistic. And I think we all understand that, but we have to start looking at specific characters. So here's one character that we might start to bring into this conversation to question, well, why why is Russia implementing the, the COVID QR passes and the vaccine mandates and what have you? You might look at a character like Herman Greff, who is the CEO of Spurbank, which is yeah. Russia's largest lender. And Spurbank uh, is, in fact, a strategic partner of the World Economic Forum. It has been since 2008. And in 2009, Greff himself became a member of the WEF's International Business Council and now sits on the WF Board of Trustees. And in that um, position, he has also played a key role in the genesis of what became Russia's COVID vaccine, Sputnik V. And that's not the only connection um, to the World Economic Forum. You have other people like Krill Dmitriev and other people um, who have been uh, spotlighted by a uh, a blogger on Substack who goes by the name of Edward Slavsquad, who has written quite compellingly and with a lot of detailed information about these types of characters. But this is the way we start to uh, broaden that image. So we start to understand this isn't a single cohesive structure called Russia that is all moving in lockstep with whatever Putin says. No, there are many different factions and some people have various vested interests and coordinating uh, in, in coordinating with 
various structures, like, say, the World Economic Forum that is clearly pushing this great reset that they have uh, termed over the past couple of years on the back of this crisis that we're living through. So I think we have to start broadening our understanding of what are we even talking about when we talk about Russia as if it's a monolithic entity. It certainly is not. There are different players within the power structure within Russia who have sometimes competing uh, ideas about what should be happening in that country. Mm -hmm. So um, I think like even within a sovereign structure, of course, there are always uh, competing ideas. But this um, this idea of 3D chess, uh, the way I visualize it is it's also kind of like a supranational layer that interacts with the national, but it doesn't really uh, its interests are not focused on a national basis. They're kind of like a fifth column. Is that something you see too, or do you see that differently? I, I agree uh, with what you just said there. Yes, I think this is uh, an international clique um, that exists. And I don't want to say that there is a singular international clique that is enacting a singular agenda. As I say, there are different people within these different power factions who sometimes collude and sometimes uh, fight, but it isn't um, necessarily for the interests that we believe. For example, as I keep stressing, not every um, piece uh, in the army of Russia, uh, metaphorically speaking, of course, is a black piece on the chessboard or a white piece or however you want to frame that. They are uh, beholden to different uh, power structures and organizations and have tentacles and spokes and cooperation with various international factions. And this isn't something we have to speculate about. I think one of the, uh, an example that I often turn to because it's so blatant and uh, such an admission against interest that I think it serves as a valuable piece of evidence is a book by David Rothkopf from 2008, uh, 2008 called Superclass, The Global Power Elite and the World They Are Making. And for people who don't know, David Rothkopf um, uh, was the director of Kissinger and Associates for a long time. Uh, he edited uh, foreignpolicy.com. Uh, uh, he's been in Washington circles and think tanks and what have you for uh, many, many decades. So this is an esteemed thinker, not some crazed conspiracy theorist. Um, and he wrote this book in 2008 called Superclass, specifically to point out that, as he said, quote, a global elite has emerged over the past several decades that has vastly more power than any other group on the planet. Each of the members of this superclass has the ability to regularly influence the lives of millions of people in multiple countries worldwide. Each actively exercises this power, and they often amplify it through the development of relationships with others in this class. The age of inherited lifelong power is largely behind us, and for most members of the group, influence is transitory. To truly be a member of this superclass, one has to hold on to power for at least long enough to make an impact. Dot, dot, dot. And I would encourage people to read through that book if they're interested more in David Rothkopf's conspiracy theory, or at the very least, that is in exact accord with the, the picture that I am trying to paint of what the global power structure looks like. But the difference is when I say it, of course, I am often poo-pooed and dismissed as that crazy conspiracy theorist. When David Rothkopf says it, well, of course, that, yeah, well, we all know that happens. And then the conversation moves on. But no, I think that is an important point to make. There is a class, and as Rothkopf contends, it's a class of about 6,000 people 
who, as he says, are able to regularly influence the lives of millions of people across borders in an international way through their businesses and or uh, institutions that do not hold office in any traditional sense. These are not members of government, but they often have more power than the members of internet uh, of, of individual nation, national government. Exactly. Yeah, the quote is pretty blatant, actually, and very undemocratic, of course. So what you described, too, is that this is not something that's up, that's monolithic. Um, so you mentioned factions. What kind of factions do you discern? Well, I think there are, uh, as with everything else, there are so many different competing factions and ideas. And I think uh, almost everyone who comes to this probably comes from their own biography with their own biases and their own agenda. Um, the easiest level, I think, for anyone to understand and psychologize with anyone, any would-be participant of this superclass is, of course, the, the monetary level, simply interested for their own sake or the sake of their family or the sake of their business or business interests, or we could expand that web out um, to, to, to uh, larger circles, but at any rate, for some sort of monetary gain for themselves. Um, others are, of course, motivated by all of the various things that people um, can be motivated by, um, whether that's uh, uh, race and gender and all of those things come into it, I'm sure. But I think that the real glue is, of course, ideology. And I liken it often to a, a mafia war that is taking place. And everyone, everyone knows, I think, through Hollywood uh, flicks, if nothing else, that there are different um, mobs that often engage in turf battles and wars to control this or that area of a city or what have you. And uh, we understand what that is. These are internet. Uh, these are organized crime structures that sometimes cooperate with each other and sometimes compete with each other. And obviously for their own interests and their own sake, uh, sometimes they will come together, uh, especially on those points in which the mafia itself, the organized crime syndicate is threatened then they will often band together to cooperate with each other to get themselves out of that precarious predicament. And then they will go back to warring with each other. And I, I, I imagine geopolitics functions quite a lot like that, that there are times in which the fundamental game that is being played of this global international superclass structure that's being erected, whenever that is called into question, the, they will circle the wagons and protect that racket that is, that is forming, and then they'll go back to fighting with each other. And I, I think probably one of the lower rungs of that ladder of importance of things that are motivating these people has to do with national affiliations. Uh, I, I do not think that national affiliation is something that keeps someone like a Henry Kissinger or someone along those lines up at night thinking about the United States way United States, as in, you know, oh, I only care about the United States. Uh, this is someone who thinks more in terms of the, the visionary global idea of how do we manage a global world order. And in this particular age, perhaps Pax Americana, maybe will the American empire is the way to, to form those types of stable relations. But in another age, perhaps it's China. And switching national allegiances like that would be less of a, a mental barrier for members of this superclass than I think it would be for for you or I or people at our level um, that who tend to associate with 
these ideas of nationalism and other things that we that have been handed down to us and often drilled into us through the schooling system. Uh, these people are not necessarily encumbered by such ideas. Their fundamental ideology, the one that I think glues members of the superclass together generally, is the idea that there are an elite few who deserve to control the vast majority of people on the planet. And uh, that may sound, again, that I hope it does sound outlandish, actually, to people who've never really thought about it. Um, I think we often have cynical views of politicians and whether they're really there for our sake and really helping us or whether they're there to control us and uh, manipulate us and uh, squeeze us for our uh, life energy in the form of taxation and what have you. But I, I don't think we have that similar level of distrust for the international superclass, the people who are not in national governments, but still able to wield great degree of power over our lives. And an example of that from my own upbringing, being a Canadian, uh, I was always steeped in essentially propaganda about how wonderful the United Nations is and how amazing it is as an institution that needs to be venerated and celebrated at every opportunity. And it's about brotherly love between all men and uh, it's a, a wonderful peacemaking organization, et cetera, et cetera. Until you start to get into some of the scandals that the United Nations has been involved in over the years and some of the maybe the, the reasons that the United Nations came together in the first place and some of the characters who have populated its halls and some of the things that it has actually accomplished as an organization. And once you start to look at its actual record, you start to recognize that, oh, perhaps there has been a bit of propaganda that's been thrown in there. Um, that's that's my vision of how this is ultimately operating. It is a system that is founded on the ideology that a few deserve to rule over the many. And these institutions are just convenient uh, covers, I think, for a, a much darker agenda. And one that, uh, to our credit, I think most people have a hard time wrapping their mind around because most people do not share that urge to actually rule over masses of people. Most people just want to live their lives and let others live their lives. Uh, there are people who are not so inclined. And I think those are the types of people who often infest the upper reaches of this superclass. Mm -hmm. So, um, because I think that's why your concept of the third dimension is so useful, because I notice in conversations that people, as you say, they, they have a difficulty imagine that um, that there may be a darker purpose behind this, that this is not purely about health. Um, and yeah, when you say darker agenda, I get the impression that what has been happening in the last few years is kind of like a coup by this 3D layer. Um, is that something, yeah, would you express it like that? Or can you explain a little bit more about how you see this agenda? In a sense, I think that might be a useful way of, of framing this. At any rate, I can point uh, concretely to the things that I have talked about for much of the past 15 years, identifiably at least for the past 13 years, I have been talking specifically about the legislative and international for, uh, uh, treaties and other such uh, items that have been laid as groundwork for what we are living through right now. So, for example, I had a podcast in 2009 on the concept of medical martial law first describing that because at the time in 2009 it was difficult for most people to even understand what that meant martial law of course a state in which 
military rulers are are uh, ruling by dictate over a, a presumably dem- democratic country. Well, for the time being, we're going to suspend all of that and military rulers will take over. What does medical martial law mean? Well, that, that's when you put people of uh, medical officers of some sort in charge of dictating public policy. And I laid out at that time all of the legislative infrastructure that had taken place, for example, in the United States, but also through the World Health Organization to uh, essentially flick a switch, a switch that could be flicked at any time that uh, a public health emergency of international concern, a PHEIC, was declared. Suddenly, all these powers would accrue to this global public health mafia, essentially, that is now running and dictating uh, the response of country after country around the world. So we are living through that right now. And of course, I think everyone can see that we are living through what seems to be a fairly, if not tightly coordinated, exactly in lockstep, to use that word, um, a, a series of policies. But broadly, we're seeing the same responses taking place in in London and Brussels and Paris and Amsterdam and Berlin and uh, Washington and many other places around the world uh, using lockdowns, using vaccine mandates, using health passes that are often being called green passes for no adequately explained reason, et cetera, et cetera. What, how, did the, how did this level of coordination happen? It must have just all happened as a result of this pandemic that we're living through. No, no, it did not. And I've pointed to many pieces along the, uh, the path that have led us here. For example, the passage of the uh, international health regulations by the World Health Organization in 2006 that laid the uh, infrastructure for the World Health Organization to be able to declare these public health emergency of international concern, these PHEICs, which was first declared in 2009 as a result of the swine flu hysteria that swept the globe at that time. Of course, after the swine flu season, it was then admitted Oh, actually, the flu season was a less deadly flu season than usual. But the uh, WHO was able to declare an international pandemic on the basis of a, uh, a definition of pandemic that they had changed just months before they declared the swine flu to be an international pandemic. And then they declared a public health emergency of international concern, which activated uh, the the stockpiling of Tamiflu and other such drugs um, as a uh, part of the contracts that had been signed by all of the signatories of the World Health Organization with the various pharmaceutical manufacturers. And later on, it came out through a Council of Europe investigation that the very people sitting on the board that advised the WHO to declare that PHEIC were themselves people with financial ties to pharmaceutical manufacturers, including people sitting on the boards of some of these manufacturers whose pharmaceutical products were going to be uh, purchased as a result of that declaration. Direct conflict of interest. The Council of Europe was ringing the alarm about this back a decade plus ago. Uh, We saw similar things developing in, say, for example, in 2014, I had a podcast about the Ebola scare that was taking place at that time, in which I pointed out Once again, they're talking about the declaration of a PHEIC and mainstream sources, even Newsweek was talking about the types of things that could be done in the event of such a declaration. They pointed to, for example, Stephen Morrison, who is the director of the Global Health Policy Center at uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, thesis, an organization that is clearly 
I think has ties to the superclass, who was talking about um, the declaration of the PHAIC means that the UN director general um, could uh, re- coordinate an international response response it up to and including mobilizing NATO military assets to restrict travel in and out of countries where Ebola is present. Because, of course, Ebola was the big scare of 2014, if you can cast your mind back to those days. So uh, this this has already been laid out. This is already there, ready to go. And now we see the, the switch flipped, the trigger pulled, the declaration of a global pandemic and a public health emergency of international concern. And suddenly, for vast majority of the population who had no idea that the WHO or barely knew it existed, suddenly find themselves beholden to these pronouncements from this international body that who elected them into office? How do they have control over the global public health response to this crisis that we're supposedly what what is happening here? Again, most people will not even have seen these steps being taken. And now they will think that it all just happened in the past couple of years spontaneously, as it were. But I point out, no, this has been a decades long agenda. Exactly. And what's interesting about this, too, I think, is the difference between long term and short term agendas, because in Western democracies, we're used of shifts of government every four years and everything appears to happen kind of haphazardly and with a lot of mistakes. And if mistakes are made, it's not on purpose or it's a bureaucracy. But what you describe and again, I cannot recommend your your documentaries enough because when I see something, I want to learn more about it. And you are always very well sourced. So then you can actually do the reading and and do the deep dive. Um, but what you explain right now is really long-term planning. And we're not used to that, but most people are not even able to imagine it. If you say there's a longer-term plan, you're a conspiracy thinker, and um, no, reality doesn't work like that. But yeah, what you explain is very to the contrary. I, I, I hope that people can it can uh, surmount that incredulity barrier because, of course, again, most people do not think in terms of these years long, decades long, in some cases, generations long ideas that uh, are unfolding and progressing towards a certain identifiable point that seems so far in the distance that most people don't even understand that a journey is taking place. So let's just look at a, a microcosm of that. Let's just cast our minds back less than a decade ago, to 2014. Uh, At that time, we had an organization of a conference on inclusive capitalism, which was a term that was uh, being bandied about by the super class at that time. This conference was organized by Lynn Forrester de Rothschild and brought together 250 corporate and financial leaders uh, who, uh, uh, in attendance, in that single room for that single conference, who themselves controlled some $30 trillion in investable assets, i.e. one-third of all investable assets on the planet for this conference. And they were talking about this idea of inclusive capitalism. That was the name of the conference. That was the name of the idea. And what does that that really mean? Well, that's a good question. Uh, As NPR even, uh, National Public Radio in the U.S., uh, pointed out in their article on this subject back in 2014, that phrase, inclusive capitalism, is deliberately broad. People talked about it as valuing long-term investment over short-term profits. 
Some mentioned environmental stewardship, others focused on treating workers well. Christine Lagarde, who runs the International Monetary Fund, said it is, said it is a way to rebuild trust in the financial system. <laughs> so, yes, they'll interpret that phrase, inclusive capitalism, any way they want to interpret it. But if we move that forward, we've seen this idea. So the idea is, okay, all these people who, these 250 people who control one third of the investable assets on the planet should put their minds together and and start thinking about how they can use their resources to start to change the way that business is conducted and for what purpose. And of course, it's put behind this flowery platitude language of, oh, it's to help help people gain inclusivity, it's for sustainability, it's for saving the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But what does that actually look like? How does that actually proceed? Well, you start to get organizations like the aforementioned World Economic Forum, which starts to uh, uh, spearhead this movement for, as uh, Klaus Schwab, the director of the World Economic Forum, puts it, stakeholder capitalism, which is his version of inclusive capitalism. The idea, we're not we're not asking businesses to be beholden to shareholders anymore. No, we're asking them to be beholden to stakeholders, as in everyone in a community who is affected by a business should have a stake in that business and a say in where those funds are going and how they're being directed and whether they can exploit this asset or take over this piece of land, etc., which sounds like a wonderful idea. Yes, yes, we do all have some sort that we should have some sort of say in what's being done to our world in the name of these corporations that seem utterly uh, uh, out of our control, we, we, we should have a stay, say in that. So along comes the World Economic Forum saying, yes, this is a problem. So we're going to create a, a, a metric by which we can measure and, and determine how well a corporation is listening to its stakeholders. It's called ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Metric. And we're going to draft these rules and we're going to come along with all of these ideas for Okay, if a if a business does this, then they can uh, th then we will give them this mark on this metric. And if they do this, then we'll give them this mark. And through the creation of this ESG metric, they can start to shape and steer that at least 30 trillion. In fact, now they're talking about over 100 trillion when we start uh, moving forward to the recently proposed uh, uh, vehicle, financial vehicle that was proposed at the COP26 climate conference uh, in Glasgow just a, a few months ago. They're talking about $100 trillion in investable asset, assets now that are going to be diverted into only environmentally sustainable businesses that are committed to net zero, et cetera. And who gets to decide what are the metrics by which we measure which corporations are doing well or not? It's the World Economic Forum because they've already created this ESG metric. We start to see how this language, this the, these frameworks are put in place, are introduced into the general vernacular. So they're, they're introduced to people through these, the, uh, these conferences that are then reported out through the media. And then they start to develop over time, not because of, not necessarily because of the type of smoky backroom conspiracy that I, I, I think is the comic book version of conspiracy. No, it's more like a, a general nudge in this direction. We are all, okay, so we're all going to be committed to this. What does that actually mean? We'll let the World Economic Forum figure that out. Or we'll let, say, uh, Mark Carney or people like that figure it out for us, and they will tell us which businesses we can and cannot invest in. And then you start putting it into actual law so that, for example, a government pension fund 
can't invest in this or that business unless they meet these ESG metrics that have been created for us by the World Economic Forum. And you start to see how entire economies can be shifted this way and that and directed and steered this way and that by a relatively small superclass, like the superclass identified by David Rothkopf. Exactly. Yeah, I have a background in sustainability, so it's very recognizable what you explain. And I think a lot of people who work in it, we have a sincere um, motivation to to um, ameliorate some conditions, such as like environmental damages or how people are treated, so human rights. And um, in my experience, these frameworks are very oppressive because they steer you in a certain direction. And um, um, they hinder you from really approaching the topics that you you need to appro- approach. So, and and as you say, like um, it's it's really an agenda that's being set. Um, I, I noticed, for example, that there are a lot of uh, sustainability frameworks that some have m- much more ethical motivation, but once the sustainable development goals were introduced, suddenly. All companies wanted to use these sustainability development goals. And I remember discussing with uh, fellow consultants, like, why are these suddenly such a hype? Because they're not so good. Who is behind this? Who made this up? Um, shouldn't we have other focus? Um, but back then, I didn't, ha- I didn't understand the agenda, but I did have a lot of hesitation about what was happening within the field. I I can very much appreciate what you're saying there because I want to stress that exactly right. I do not believe that everyone who is, say, a participant in the World Economic Forum or some organization like that, or the people at the uh, involved in sustainable development groups or or uh, movements at national levels, are all part of some committed conspiracy and are all consciously trying to move towards some global governmental structure or something. I think, no, these people are taken advantage of by people who are using their language and saying, yes, it's about sustainability. It's about protecting the environment. It's about this or that particular policy that they will then push. And I wish I had the reference for you off the top of my head, but I know there was a very interesting documentary I saw in the last few months. It was by an environmental activist, I believe, in Norway, but I stand to be corrected on that. But he was trying to bring attention to the ways that it, these larger environmental groups were, uh, in fact, subverting the work of, of uh, environmental activists at the local level by their broad deals that they were working out and their concentration on, on certain subjects like carbon dioxide at the, uh, at the expense of other um, types of preservation and other work that this particular activist found important. And he was coming up against this essentially international structure that's being created around the sustainable development movement and environmental movement and starting to realize that this is not something that is uh, it, it is being worked on at the local level and is, it certainly has this wide grassroots support. Of course, who doesn't want to protect the earth? But that motivation is being used as a cover or a smokescreen for what's going on at a deeper level. So you raise, for example, the sustainable development goals as an excellent case in point, the SDGs. Where did they come from? How did they? Oh, it's a United Nations uh, spearheaded project, so it must be good. And as you say, it's not only being object, uh, adopted, say, in Europe. It I can attest it's 
here in Japan, everywhere. Suddenly now all these advertisements and corporations all want you to know which SDGs they're reaching and how they're going to reach them. And people are wearing the little SDG circular rainbow pin and all of this sort of accoutrement. It's, it's all over the world. But the devil is always in the details. So one example I always point out when I have an opportunity to do so, the UN Declaration of Human Rights is this wonderful uh, document flowing with all of this wonderful language about all of the rights that everyone on earth should have. And most, I, I would say most of them are, are things that no one uh, uh, of right mind or people who are, I think, well-meaning people would dispute talking about the wonderful you know, ways that uh, citizens' rights should be respected and protected and fostered, etc. But when you get to the very end of that document, the, the second to last article in that document uh, says that, well, all of these rights can and will be taken away from you if you do anything against the UN. <laughs> so it's, it's this wonderful document that gives you so much, unless you don't like us, in which case we can do anything we want to you, which is embedded at the very end of the document. I think Similarly, the Sustainable Development Goals, of course, have a lot of things that sound wonderful. Who doesn't want to eradicate hunger? Who doesn't want to get rid of child poverty? Who doesn't want to uh, make education available for, to, to all and all of these wonderful goals? But what does it really mean and how does it function? So, for example, look at Sustainable Development Goal 16.9 on identity, which claims that by 2030, pro, uh, the SDGs will provide legal identity for all, including birth registration. And this is framed as a wonderful thing. It's getting everyone inclusive in the, the various systems that are going to be rolling out for taking care of people and providing government aid to them. We, there, are, there is a huge problem in, in India and places like this where there are the, the unbanked and, and people who don't have birth certificates and, and don't officially legally exist but need to get government aid and they can't do so, it's a problem. So how can we do this? We need to provide identity to everyone. And from that motivation, you get groups like ID2020, which spring up, which is a consortium among the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Microsoft and Accenture and other uh, odd, odd bedfellows of, of uh, corporate and, and philanthropic partners who are coming together to find and hammer out ways that we can provide identification to everyone. And what does that really look like? Well, Bill Gates, of course, obviously of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and formerly uh, the CEO of Microsoft, uh, has a thing or two to say about that. He was the one who helped uh, at, at any rate, who um, fostered a friendship with the person who uh, created the Adhar system in India, which is the world's largest biometric identification system, which has so far registered about a billion people, uh, registered their eyeballs, their iris scans, and their fingerprints in a computer database, so that now essentially the entirety of India is in a computer database with their biometric details. And now now someone doesn't need a piece of paper or something like that. They just go and scan their eyeballs in order to get their whatever it is, their government granted uh, bag of rice or uh, whatever they're they're seeking at that moment. Again, it sounds like a wonderful situation until you start to wonder about what else could be enabled on the back of this. So, for example, could we tie that into, say, a vaccine mandate so that, yes, you can scan your eyeball and we'll know that you are John Smith of such and such an address. but Oh, it also says here that you don't have uh, your your vaccine pass in order. You're going to have to take the shot in order to interact with the the government. Or um, 
I, I, we could imagine any number of stip- stipulations that we put on that. And that's an example of how a very g- benign sounding and largely laudable goal of trying to get everyone inclusively in this system could be used by people with an agenda that may be ulterior to what we tend to think about in our everyday lives. And it's extremely insidious and it's extremely difficult, as I say, to get a lot of people to even begin broaching subjects like this because they, uh, again, I like to think it's because of our rather trusting nature, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It means that I think a lot of people are not motivated by ill intent and do not want to rule over other people, but they cannot imagine that such systems are being put in place specifically to enable the type of tyranny that people of the past have warned about. Uh, go and read Orwell's 1984. It, it was not meant as an instruction manual. It was meant as a warning. And yet here we are on the brink of implementing some of the most nightmarish aspects of that type of police state without even questioning whether it is a police state. Exactly, because you mentioned this is progressing towards a single point. Can you explain more about what you think this is progressing towards? Well, I, 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 to follow up on, on my assessment of the core ideology of the superclass, which is control of the very, very many by a very, very few, which I think is predicated, at least in our current age, on the, the pseudoscience, essentially, of eugenics. Um, and people should look into the history of eugenics and the idea and where it came from. If they're interested, they could go to CorbettReport.com slash Big Oil, which is my How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary, where I talk about essentially the the birth and uh, the spreading of the eugenics idea from the late 19th century into the early 20th century, and then the transformation of that idea into sustainability and environmental movement, and then the transformation of that idea into technocracy. And I think technocracy is the governance model um, that is in the minds of these uh, eugenics-obsessed uh, superclass uh, for the future. And in the technocratic model, it is a society that is going to be governed by scientific principles, by engineers and scientists who can quite precisely calculate the amount of energy inputs and outputs in the economy and can then balance them properly so there's no wastage in the system. This was the idea and ideals that were set by the uh, technocracy movement of Technocracy Inc. in the 1930s. It was this idea that uh, grew out of the basement, literally the basement of Columbia University and became an international movement that actually had quite a bit of clout, although it's largely forgotten today, but uh, it had... uh, uh, devote uh, devoted adherence to this idea of technocracy, and we're going to have a technoc- technocratic uh, society run by engineers and scientists. And that idea, that kernel of that idea, was at the time that it was formulated, pretty insane. <laughs> they were they were literally trying to implement a system whereby every single transaction and interaction that took place in the economy could be monitored and cataloged and analyzed in real time, which of course was absolutely, utterly impossible in the 1930s. But fast forward to 2020, 2022, that does not seem so far-fetched. In fact, we're almost there and we're right on the cusp of the implementation of a central bank digital currency. When you start to see all of these various pieces, the central bank digital currency, the the identity uh, idea, um, uh, the health passports, social credit score, All of these things are about essentially limiting and uh, 
placing it tightly and defined and regulated controls on the interactions and the transactions of every single individual on the planet so that if someone in this superclass desired to do so, they could essentially turn on or off the ability of any single person to participate in society. Again, that idea, just what I just said in that sentence, might have seemed outlandish to a lot of people even a year or two ago. But anyone who is staring at what is taking place right now in the face, i.e. these vaccine mandates and health passes and other things that are happening in country after country around the globe and do not see this as a potential even for where this is heading, uh, I think is literally uh, I shouldn't say literally, is burying their head in the sand and is not you know, looking squarely at this agenda. I, I think the ultimate vision of the future for the technocratic superclass is one in which every single person is beholden essentially to the state nominally, but at, as, at, at a deeper level, the superclass for their participation in society. And ultimately, that level of control is now technologically feasible, and the various parts of that agenda are being rolled out as we speak. Yeah, I agree. And I would also say that um, it doesn't, it appears that it wouldn't be states in the, in the sovereign idea that we grew up with, but the state more as an executioner of this globalist policy. Essentially right. I think it's, This is speculation, but it seems to me that it would be more in the interests of the people who are part of the superclass to uh, implement it in a way that has a national face on the various uh, implementations of these ideas, Uh, that there should be a national government that people interface with and that they feel that they have some control over and can vote such a person in or out, but that that is not actually where the power is emanating from. And that is, uh, and so voting this way or that is not fundamentally going to change the agenda. And again, I'd like to say that anyone who has looked at the the progress, quote unquote, of these ideas of of centralization of control and technological um, uh, lever points over over the mass of humanity, the way this has unfolded through administration after administration, government after government, uh, throughout the entirety of the 20th century leading into the 21st century, no matter who is in power, it always seems to be progressing in the similar direction. And I think that's that's the point. It isn't about the nation state governments being the centers of power, at, certainly not at this point. Um, and again, I think that's most evident right now, just taking a look at something like the World Health Organization and seeing the amount of power it has over seemingly sovereign nation states. Exactly. So I have one last question. Do you still have time for it? Because I know it's late for you. Let's do one more. Okay. So how do this 2D and 3D interact? Because we see a lot of tensions in Ukraine and in Taiwan. Um, and it happened in the past that there is so much uh, internal civil unrest that it's worthwhile to start external wars. Um, yeah. Do you think it's likely that there will be that there will be a war or yeah how do you view that like especially on 2d level you see these war tensions and on 3d there's a tendency towards centralization how does this interact yes thank you for bringing that up because in fact that is 
probably one of the most common questions I get from people who do understand my 3D chess analogy and, and are on board with the, uh, the idea. But they often ask, well, then why do, how do you think there may be war that's going to take place if, if it's all being controlled by some superclass faction that, that is controlling both sides? Why do you think there will be a war? And I, 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 again, it speaks, I think, to the, the inability of most people to imagine to truly put themselves in that position of a superclass who's trying to direct both sides in what may be a stage-managed conflict, but will still be conflict. And that's because, of course, the vast majority of people within these systems, even the systems of government, probably truly do believe in that 2D chess version of the world. They see things from that perspective. And I have no doubt that there are many people, for example, in the U.S. military or in the Russian military or in the Chinese military who are beholden or, and, and do feel their allegiance to their nation state and do see themselves in this two-dimensional conflict with the enemy on the other side. I think those tensions are real. Most people are living their lives in that. And I think those genuine, real uh, held beliefs and, and outlooks of the world are then manipulated by the superclass, pitting that person against that person or that team against that team in order to achieve a greater goal. So I think the real question is, uh, when does the calculus become such that it is actually more beneficial for this superclass for there to be a war than not be a war? And at the point at which that changes over, I think that is when we tend to see large scale wars break out. Uh, people who are interested for uh, in a specific historical example of this can turn to my World War One documentary. It's called The World War One Conspiracy. It's at CorbettReport.com slash WWI. And there I lay out the, the conspiracy that led to World War I, because, of course, the official story of the outbreak of World War I is essentially a conspiracy theory. It's a story about a conspiracy that took place in Sarajevo to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand that led to a greater conflict, etc. But I, I see a, a much wider picture that involved different players than are often pointed out. Um, but in that case, just because the various sides were not who they seemed to be or were being puppeteered by a superclass that had different ulterior motives didn't mean that a, there wasn't a war and that people didn't die. Of course, there was a world war and people did die, uh, just not necessarily for whatever they believed they were dying for. And that's the, the, the sense in which I think there very well could be a World War III. And that World War III... Uh, I also often stress that the World War III is essentially already ongoing and it is a war against us, all of us, by this superclass. But in the 2D sense of a World War III, I think there really could be a great conflict between Russia and the U.S. or however that plays out, um, precisely because it may be the way in which the superclass can more effectively attain their goals of centralization of control over the planet. And at that point where that calculus is made and uh, you know, okay, well, it'll, it will disrupt international trade and it will, you know, hurt the, the pocketbooks of some of our business partners, etc. But uh, we, we can actually attain greater control over the world through that. Uh, I, I think at that point, that that's the point at which war becomes a real possibility. So just because the 2D chess match is to some degree manipulated and or managed by uh, a, a, an, an unseen team that is moving pieces in ways we don't understand does not mean that war will not happen at the two-dimensional level.
Thank you. Good. That helps a lot. Thank you for this very elucidating interview. It's um, yeah, it's been very helpful, and you even explained so much more than in your article. So I hope a lot of people will um, um, it will help them to understand the power structure, and hopefully they will watch your job documentaries too, because yeah, they helped me a lot in trying to understand what's going on. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for helping to spread this information, because I know it is a very difficult thing to to bring to the public's attention. And so I appreciate everyone who's out there doing that. Oh, you're very welcome. Have a good right. evening. Yeah, you too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.